Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Boris Johnson's Downing Street operation collapsed this week as the Prime Minister was criticised by his own Chancellor for a slur he made about Sir Keir Starmer and notorious paedophile Jimmy Savile. And with regard to their comments, in you know, being, being honest, I wouldn't have said it, and I'm glad that the Prime Minister clarified what he meant. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be looking at whether Boris Johnson can survive this latest scandal engulfing his government, which you heard Chancellor Rishi Sunak discuss at the top. Is the departure of his closest long-standing aide, Munira Mirza, the beginning of the end, or the start of a reset demanded by MPs? Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard will discuss, along with our Chief Political Commentator, Robert Shrimsley. And later, we'll be looking at the long-awaited Leveling Up White Paper and ask, does it deliver on the high promises to rebalance the regions of the UK? Will those pro-Brexit first-time Tory voters feel its promises will deliver for them? Special guest Rachel Wolf, who penned the 2019 Tory manifesto, will discuss along with the Manchester Evening News' Jennifer Williams. But thank you all for joining. This week was meant to be about the cost of living for Boris Johnson's government, but instead it turned into a row about his Downing Street operation, with four of the most senior people in his inner circle resigning on Thursday evening, led by Munira Mirza, who's worked with Boris Johnson for 14 years since his days at City Hall. Mirza announced he was departing following comments the Prime Minister made about Jimmy Savile and Sir Keir Starmer, which he has yet to fully apologise for. Speaking on Thursday, the Prime Minister partially apologised for the remark, but it was evidently not enough to halt Mirza's resignation. No one is commenting, at least for me, about the personal involvement of the leader of the opposition in the handling of that case. All that uh, I've said uh, and, uh, is that uh, the leader of the opposition apologised for the, uh, the, the CPS's handling of that issue during his tenure. That's, and that's all, that I frank, frankly, that needs to be said on that matter. Well, Jim Picard, what a bizarre political week it's been, because we all thought this was going to be about Sue Gray and the energy crisis. And as we're recording this on Friday morning, when things are still moving, it's now turned into a question again about whether Boris Johnson can survive following Manila Merz's departure, which happened on Thursday afternoon and was totally unexpected. Absolutely. The, the Merz bombshell came out of clear blue sky on Thursday afternoon. Nobody was expecting it at all. And the fact that she made it an issue of integrity. The fact that she basically accused Boris Johnson of, of weaponizing a really distasteful you know, online theory about Keir Starmer's failure to prosecute Jimmy Savile. It was a very personal attack for her to say that Boris Johnson shouldn't have said it, ignored her advice not to do it, and this was why she was leaving. Even as that comment came out via journalist at The Spectator, there was speculation among colleagues that surely there must be something more going on here? Was there some kind of power struggle going on? And lo and behold, within a, within a few hours, we had a bunch of other inverted commas resignations by people who very clearly were pushed 
from on high. And it does leave quite a few gaps in Downing Street. I don't necessarily subscribe to the view that this is the beginning of the end of the PM. I think for that to happen, you would need something absolutely momentous, such as Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, moving against Boris Johnson. And although he has tried to sort of stay out of the way of party gate, and he was very open when he was asked about the Jimmy Savile slur, would he have said it? And, and the Chancellor, yeah, at a podium in number 10 Downing Street, said it's not something he would have said. You can see why Boris Johnson's team are distrustful of the Chancellor, but at the moment it doesn't look like he's going to make a move. So it's not inconceivable that Boris Johnson does stagger on, and a lot of it is up to whether he still has the appetite and the hunger to keep on going. But you've got to remember the maths here. He still has a majority of 80 seats. We still haven't got to 54 Tory MPs saying they want a vote of no confidence. And even if you get the 54 MPs, you still need another 130-odd to vote for him to go, for him to be toast. Robert Shrimsley, thank you very much for joining us from a slightly blustery Chew platform. It is bizarre when you put it in those terms that Boris Johnson's government, yes, they're the behind in the pose following the whole Partygate scandal and the rest of it. But politically, he's still got that huge majority. And it just felt this week as if the whole government is slowly imploding of its own accord and because of failures in Downing Street. And Manima Merz's departure, I think, has been widely agreed, is damaging to the prime minister. But he tried to jump on the front foot here by having a clear out of number 10. And we know at this time of recording, Three very senior aides have gone. Dan Rosenfeld, Chief of Staff, Jack Doyle, Director of Communications, and the Principal Private Secretary, who's a civil servant, Martin Reynolds, he of the infamous party invite, have all departed. The Prime Minister's all trying to get back on the front foot here. Do you think it's going to work? No, I don't. I slightly disagree with the way Jim framed this, because I think the media emerged the resolution was completely different from the other three, which were all entirely foreshadowed and expected. They were the three most likely four guys for the whole party affair. There were the three people Boris was going to get rid of. Boris was going to get rid of. But you know, as you said, an incredibly long-serving ally. And although there's always probably a bit more to these things, possibly the shooters getting a bit fed up with the way things were going in Downing Street, the fact is, if you're a Tory MP wavering over whether you want to come out against Boris Johnson or not, the fact that even one of his closest aides, someone who's grown from one of his five most important women in his life, has said, actually, it's time, I can't do it anymore. That's the kind of thing that pushes people over the edge. I think that he's getting it, he's going to find it harder and harder to get his government back on an even keel. And we saw that since the levelling up white paper happened, it's already forgotten about. The energy policy, that's already overshadowed. And the point is, Britain's facing very, very serious economic turbulence now. And it will try a government that was completely in command of its events politically. But this government is lurching at the moment from one piece of paralysis to another. It's increasingly inward-looking. All Tory MPs are talking about is what's going to happen with Boris. Downing Street has lost a lot of key people, and it's going to find it hard to recruit good people to replace them because everyone's looking at Boris Johnson thinking, well, am I going to give up my job to go and work there? So I think the instability is going to continue, and I do think it's a matter of, of when rather than if. The only thing I'd say about Manira Mirza is that I do totally agree with Robert that her departure was very different to the others. The others were taking the blame for Partygate. She seems to have resigned on a, on a point of principle. But it's not as if she's some big conservative figure who has a fan base among conservative MPs. If anything, she's a very sort of chaotic character who is from a libertarian wing of politics who I know when she started working for Boris Johnson at City Hall, she didn't even belong to the Conservative Party. And you hear quite eccentric stories, for example, when he banned alcohol on the tube, this offended her libertarian principles and she actually campaigned. She joined protesters on the circle line, even though she doesn't drink, basically protesting against her boss's own policy. So 
I don't know who the MPs are who would be sort of inspired by her leaving to then sort of muster the courage to call for Boris Johnson to go. I mean, I, I suppose it's possible. And then the other theory that is quite hard to nail down is whether her and her husband, Dougie, who works in Downing Street, are close to Rishi Sunak. And there is some kind of coordination going on there. I mean, if, if it turns out this has been tacitly or not tacitly coordinated by other senior figures, that could be quite dangerous for Johnson, couldn't it? Well, I agree with that, Jim. And I think that, Robert, really where this story goes next is the question of ministers, because really everyone senior has now left Downing Street. Boris Johnson has got to rebuild the whole operation, which he pledged to do to MPs on Monday, that following the Sue Gray report, he met with the Conservative Parliamentary Party and made it very clear he said he would rebuild Downing Street. And my understanding is there's been a lot of tension between Boris Johnson's view, which is to make surface level changes, and some of the ministers closest to Johnson saying, look, this has got to be a total clear out. And when the Prime Minister came on the train back from Blackpool on Thursday, when he was doing a visit, talking about that levelling of white paper, which we'll come on to later in the podcast, he realised he was going to have to do that total clear out. But I think if we see junior ministers or even a cabinet minister say he has to go, say he's made the wrong call over that Jimmy Savile remark, then that would be quite brutal, I think. And then that really would accelerate the march towards the crucial 54 letters to get a no confidence vote. If he starts losing members of his own government ministers, then the situation deteriorates fast, although it slightly depends which ministers they are. I mean, there are some pretty obscure ministers whose departure he could probably bat away. Some of the names that we've both heard being batted around are not household figures. So even then he could probably do something. But I think the point is you just have this sense of the creep towards the 54 to trigger the ballot. I think there are 54 people who would put in letters, but haven't chosen, not necessarily chosen to do so yet, because they're trying to work out the point about timing, because as you say, triggering a ballot is one thing, that's 54. Winning that ballot is 181. So that's that's an altogether different matter. It comes down to tactics and timing, and one of the things that's made that more difficult in this case is that there isn't a group coalescer. It's not like the ERG bringing down Theresa May organising everything. You just don't get the feel of a government that's going to get back on the front foot at when times are very, very difficult. And I think the conversations that are going on now are much more about do we go now or do we wait for the local elections when it's easier to explain to our constituency parties why we're toppling the prime minister. I keep thinking we're going to wait for the next Sue Gray, but no one has the slightest idea when that's coming or what it will say. To me, it feels like a lot of people have realised they can't go into the next election with him. And they're just trying to work out the right moment to strike rather than whether to strike. Well, Jim, let's look at those two other big events that happened this week. We had the long-awaited Sue Gray report, or should we say an interim report, on Monday that the full report is being held back until the Met's inquiries into the Partygate scandal have finished. But we got a 12-page interim report, which was very tightly written and was even in itself quite damning, talked about huge failures of management, talked about excessive quantities of alcohol being drunk within Downing Street. It didn't reference the Prime Minister directly. The person it came closest to referencing was Martin Reynolds, the private secretary. And Boris Johnson's response to this was to come to the House of Commons saying, I'm sorry, I get it. And he's promised institutional change. So he said that there's going to be a new office for the prime minister, an idea that's been kicking around Whitehall for decades, which is essentially splitting the cabinet office in half and taking all the domestic functions and rolling that in with a new permanent secretary and a new structure to support the prime minister. But it does feel like even though there wasn't much to it, it was still quite damning. And it has pointed that when the full report comes out, as Boris Johnson has had to say it will do post the Met inquiries, that is certainly going to be pretty problematic for him. 
I can't believe that report came out this week. It, it literally feels like so long ago and so many other news events have happened. The Seagrave report revealed the fact that there were 16 parties, more than we previously thought, and that only four of them were so trivial that they hadn't been passed on to the police. A whole 12 parties uh, had been passed on to the cops, which has got to be a not very good look, you would have thought. And, and yes, Boris Johnson did manage to rally the troops to some extent in his Commons appearance later that day, it's all very damaging stuff. But the only thing I would say is that the Sue Gray report did give Boris Johnson a lifeline amongst all the other very, very critical stuff about how people were partying while the rest of the country made huge sacrifices. Uh, she didn't resile from making quite a sort of moral criticism of these parties that went on during the COVID lockdowns. But she did give Boris Johnson a bit of a lifeline by saying that there were these structural problems in terms of leadership in Downing Street, which has enabled him grasp that and therefore say, if only we do these managerial changes, then everything will be okay in the future, which Bob Kerslake, the former head of the civil service, has, I think, rightly pointed to the fact that they're, they're now focusing a little bit more on processes and less on the sort of lapses of judgment at the time. What will happen, you would have thought, is that they, they will rebuild to some extent. Whether they can get on the front foot is difficult for various reasons, one of which is that Boris Johnson is still in charge. And the second is that we have this enormous cost of living crisis coming down the tracks. And I just think when it comes to the general public, it's true that people might become less angry with time. But I saw a very good comment by someone today who said that, you know, yes, no one's talking about Dominic Cummings and Barnard Castle anymore. But if you ask people, what do you think of Dominic Cummings? An awful lot of people will say he was the guy that appeared to break the rules during the first lockdown, and they haven't really forgiven him for it. And Boris Johnson, I suspect, won't be forgiven for a very long time for what happened. I think the structural damage to his sort of political persona could be very, very deep. I, I have a feeling he could just still stagger on. And I was in the lobby when Gordon Brown was in the, the final throes of his premiership, and he had <laughs> the resigning ministers chucking themselves at him almost every week for quite a prolonged period. And what was very interesting is that he would literally let them go, replace them with someone else. There'd be a big hoo-ha for a few days, and then there would be a new Home Secretary or Justice Secretary or whoever these people were, and just, just carry on as before. And, and therefore, what can seem like a moment of incredible political danger, if the person in charge is determined mm. to carry on, they can benefit just, just from the incumbency factor, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that. Absolutely. Now, the other thing that happened, Robert, was Rishi Sunak's big old intervention to try and help with energy bills that Ofgem, the regulator, announced a 54% rise in the cap for gas prices that would equate to almost £2,000 a year. The chance to set out a £9 billion package that would try and help this. And this came just as the Bank of England increased interest rates to 0.5% and warned that inflation could hit 7.25% in April. So that cost of living crisis that Jim just referenced there, that's another thing that's piled on top of this. And that is going to squeeze the government as well, because I think we've not been in economic circumstances like this for quite a long period of time. And Rishi Sunak is doing this big market intervention that I'm sure when he first became an MP, it's just the kind of thing he would dread and would keep him awake at night, but he hasn't been left with much choice. Do you think the package the Treasury has put out is enough? And what is going to be the political outcome of that? Well, I think it depends on who it's meant to be enough for. The defining characteristic of this package to me was the effort to spread the help 
far and wide. You know, like 80% of households will benefit from, I think, the council tax measure. And everybody will benefit from the effort, or temporarily at least, from the effort to hold down energy bill prices and smooth them out over five years, as opposed to targeting the help at those who were most in need. And what that tells you is this is very strongly a political action to try and minimise the fallout, particularly among people who are minded to vote Conservative. But the problem is that even with this action, which is extraordinary, I mean, the package and tokens around £9 billion, people are still going to feel poorer because their bills are still going to go up. Inflation is still rising. Talk of it going up 7%. The Bank of England has put up interest rates. It's probably going to have to do this again. And on top of all that, you had the governor of the Bank of England, I thought rather in a rather tone-deaf intervention, saying people shouldn't ask for wage rises. So in other words, you should swallow the whole inflationary cost of living rather than try and insulate yourself against it. You know, come May, we'll have the next public sector pay reports. None of this is going away. So the interventions were strong and they showed a, a desire to help. They're not going to insulate people from the problems. And Rishi Sunak was quite open about this. He said, we can help, but we can't make these problems go away. And these are global problems. It's not unique to Britain at all. But the fundamental fact is that people are going to start feeling poor. They're going to start feeling the pinch. And the government doesn't seem to have anything that can truly insulate them from it. And finally, Jim, so if we wrap all this together with all these challenges, Parliament's got one week before it goes into half-term recess and then things come back and the march towards the local elections will begin. Do you think Boris Johnson is going to face a challenge or do you think it's going to be a little bit of a reprieve? Um, we, the, the problem we have with these 54 names is that only Graham Brady knows, who's the chair of the 22 committee, only he knows how many letters have actually gone in. And... Uh, you know, you can talk to people. Some One MP said to me this week that they were pretty sure that there were 25 MPs just from the 2019 intake who only a week ago were prepared to put in letters. And so it's not it's not hard to make a case for getting to the 54. It's in, whether it's now or whether it's after devastating local election results in May, you could see it happening. I'm still not entirely convinced that, that the rebels would get the 180 needed, even in a secret ballot where his rivals can quietly vote against him, even if they're sitting in the cabinet at the moment. But, you know, going back to the energy point, this cost of living crisis is not going away. When you look at the bold maths of it, the average worker is facing a £600 hit from rising national insurance combined with changes to thresholds of income tax, plus the 700 quid rising bills. That's about a £1,300 hit. And therefore, Rishi Sunak giving £350 to the poorest people, and giving £200 to everyone else barely touches the sides. It's well meant, but it isn't going to stop this crisis continuing. Jim and Robert, thank you very much. Well, beyond the chaos of Downing Street, Boris Johnson tried to pivot his government onto more domestic matters with the long-awaited, long-delayed levelling-up white paper on redraw inequality. After Brexit, this is due to be the central policy plank of his government and a way of teeing up his next election campaign. Michael Gove, the levelling up secretary, released the 332-page paper on Wednesday and told the House of Commons that rebalancing the UK economy was not about penalising London. Our economy has been like a jet propelled by only one engine. Now we need to fire up every resource we have. And the economic prize from levelling up is potentially enormous. If underperforming places were levelled up towards the UK average, unlocking their full potential, it could boost aggregate UK GDP by tens of billions of pounds each year. 
with Jennifer Williams of the Manchester Evening News and soon of the FT. Welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Why was this so anticipated, this white paper? Because we've been talking about this for weeks. I think it's been delayed at least three times, but there's been so much onus put on the importance of this one document, which turned out to be 332 pages. I think there's two things. There's huge political significance to it. And then there's also huge potential economic and sort of transformation significance to it in terms of British policy. And in my neck of the woods in Manchester, people have been calling for years and decades for a kind of rewiring, really, of the way the British state works to recognise that large parts of the economy are just not firing on all cylinders, as Michael Gove says. Boris Johnson first started talking about this, I think, uh, within a couple of days of entering number 10 in, in summer 2019. And he did so in a in a speech in Manchester. And certainly the people sitting in the room from around here were kind of very much came away with the impression that, right, you know, he's coming for Labour voters. He knows who he's going after. He knows what places he wants to speak to. And politically, those were the people that he spoke to at the general election in 2019. Those were the votes that he stole off of Labour. And he was talking about the places that had undergone long-term industrial decline, issues with productivity, huge issues with life expectancy, borne the brunt of, of the sort of the, the 10 years of austerity. Post-election, of course, you've then got the issue about how do you actually undergo a change that is that radical, that difficult, that successive people had tried to push through Whitehall, George Osborne had given it a go under the Northern Powerhouse. Other people tried to do it through some of it through the industrial strategy. And it is hard stuff, really hard stuff. It does involve spending, but it also does involve the kind of fundamental wiring of the way that Whitehall works and and where power sits in this country. So the question was always going to be, it's probably not going to be Boris Johnson that's going to be the brains behind that, but is there going to be somebody in the government that takes that up and is able to try and put something together and get that through, particularly the Treasury? And then, of course, you've got the political difficulty of not wanting to look like you're levelling down London. Well, Rachel Wolf of Public First, welcome back to the podcast. Always great to have you on. So as Jen just set out there, a lot of expectations. And it was Michael Gove, who is that person, who was the one who was chosen by Boris Johnson to try and see this thing through. What did you make of the white paper? I think you've seen many of these over the years and have probably had a hand in writing many of them as well in your work for various governments. Did it meet the expectations? And does it set that kind of bar stuff Jen was talking about? The levelling up paper was so anticipated for so long and everyone had their own very specific hopes of what would be in it that I'm not sure any document could have met expectations. It seemed to me sort of doomed in that respect. But I think given the extraordinary constraints he's under, you know, the government's in a mess. The Treasury is not super keen on spending lots of money right now. I think that the paper's very impressive in that it does managed to identify serious policy levers that it can pull that long term, I think, will start to make a real difference. The most obvious to me are on devolution and R&D. And it also, which Seb, you know, I've been pushing for a very long time. It also recognises that you can't just tell people that it might be better in 30 years, but also focuses on shorter term tangible changes to things that really matter to people like high streets and green spaces and what their town feels like and looks like and what buses are like. So I think it's it's very, very impressive. It's underlined by, by impressive analysis. What I think it doesn't do is create an entire government program rowing together 
simply because the government's pretty obviously riven. Downing Street can't direct policy right now, really. The Treasury, it seems to me, doesn't completely buy the philosophy behind levelling up and certainly doesn't want to use a levelling up white paper to announce all of its spending commitments. So I think it has really impressive policies, but is it quite the document that an 80-seat majority government could have created two years ago without COVID? No. And I think that's obviously the issue there, that this has come two years since that 2019 election. You've had the pandemic, which has totally gummed up the British state, but also a lot of money. Now, one person who is less than impressed by it, as you might expect, is Lisa Nandy, who is Labour's shadow levelling up secretary. And this is what she thought of it. Seriously, is this it? The sum total of our ambition for our coastal and industrial towns, our villages and our great cities, is a history lesson on the rise of the Roman Empire. A minister scurrying around Whitehall, shuffling the deck chairs, cobbling together a shopping list of recycled policies and fiddling the figures. Is this really it? Well, Jennifer, what do you make of Lisa Nanny's argument next? If we look at the core stuff in the white paper, yes, lots of it was recycled policies from elsewhere. The money in it, which we'll come on to in a moment, was allocated in the Treasury spending review. But I think For me, the most interesting stuff was about devolution, because I think, as Rachel was just saying, fundamentally, everybody from the OECD downwards agrees the UK is an overly centralised country. And I think a lot of the metro mayors, including in Greater Manchester, where you are, but also in the Midlands and the North East, were looking to see what it said on that. And on devolution, promised talks to begin very soon to have nine county mayors that would be slightly different to the conurbation metro mayors, plus further powers for the biggest mayorities, but with no details there. Do you think that stuff is right or was it? did it not kind of have enough detail for it to mean anything? Yes, I agree that devolution is one of the areas in which the white paper is most interesting. I think that the sort of landscape, the kind of institutional landscape, as it were, is still really quite messy. So you have got those nine potential deals that are coming forward but you've still got this sort of like patchwork quilt to be fair there is also a kind of commitment towards having a sort of framework and that's what we've been missing in this country it's been really ad hoc since greater manchester sort of came to its own bespoke deal in 2014 it's a kind of attempt to come up with something that makes sense that's a bit more consistent Certainly from Greater Manchester perspective, I've been puzzled for quite a long time. What powers exactly it is that Greater Manchester wants when it comes to the table? And I think it's likely to be some stuff around skills that sits alongside the reasonably substantial R&D element of the white paper. And I think that's what they're probably going to be honing in on. But as somebody in the combined authority here said to me, actually, in some respects, we have got a dearth of powers. But one of the problems is that We've got the powers, but often we don't have the resources to really like to be able to do with it, which, of course, is kind of what Lisa and Andy is getting at in terms of the spending. What I've picked up from people in the system up here who I think tend to be relatively pragmatic is that they're quite pleased with the analysis. They feel that Gove and the people around Gove have broadly got it and that there is a framework there overall. Those 12 missions that talk about what you're aiming for roughly define what this agenda is supposed to be about. It also potentially provides a way of holding devolved places to account for whether or not they are pulling in the right direction. 
I think where it falls down is in the policy section. The R&D part is probably the most significant part of that. There's a whole list of policies that in some cases don't really have a lot to do with levelling up. In other cases have simply been rebadged. There are strategies, fundamental strategies that are missing. And you get the sense of it being back to front because the CSR was done first and then the levelling up agenda had to go around Whitehall and try and prize money and commitments out of departments that already had their money allocated. There is more positivity than is sort of immediately reflecting what and, and what you would expect Lisa Nandy to be saying. There's a sense that the kind of analysis is right. It's just that Whitehall has not stepped up and obviously a kind of ongoing concern that the Treasury just won't because its orthodoxy doesn't really fit with this. It is probably worth remembering that if this had been a department white paper, it would be one of the most impressive department white papers I've ever seen. The reason that we are worried about this is because it is trying to replace the entire government's policy agenda after a couple of years when there hasn't been an enormous amount of domestic policy, mostly because of COVID. The thing that struck me about Lisa Nandy's intervention, and she's a more articulate and compelling opposition politician than we've seen for a while, is that she has no alternative analysis and plan. She did a sort of long thread on Twitter saying this is how Labour would do it differently. And and I read through it several times and I couldn't see any examples of anything they do. This does still seem to me to be a government in trouble much more than a opposition that has a credible alternative way of doing things, partly because I think this paper does kind of get to the analysis that everyone shares. And I think that's an extraordinary thing about this moment, that there's actually a political consensus on the big question we've got, which is how do you speak to those parts of the country that feel so-called left behind and who many of them voted for Brexit in 16, voted for Tory in 2019. And for me, this is the first real policy attempt to deal with those issues. But I guess the issue, Rachel, is that those 12 policy missions that underpin the document that Jennifer was talking about, A, the aim for them is 2030, which is obviously quite a long time away. And who knows where our politics is going to be there. But the thing that concerns me is the delivery mechanism for all this stuff, because it requires a lot of bashing of heads together. And it's not just Department for Leveling Up, but it's also the Treasury, it's local government, it's health, it's work and pensions, it's education. It's really every part of the British state in Whitehall has to be focused on it. And then you come to the lower level of combined authority, local governments. And it just feels to me the grip needed across everything to make this happen is going to be really tough to see through. This is why I've always pushed very, very hard for things that people in Whitehall often dismiss as trivial, but which I think matter on their own terms and crucially can happen relatively fast, which is cleaning up high streets and parks and making sure that low-level crime is dealt with in a more serious manner. Because You can't just expect people to wait forever. On the delivery mechanism, though, I think this is one of the really interesting things about the white paper. It seems to me that what Michael has tried to do is use every possible device that he has seen forces other departments to do things. So putting missions into legislation is at one level a ludicrous thing to do. But we have seen with things like net zero that it has a massive impact on how the Whitehall machinery behaves you know, all of these kind of wonky technocratic devices, which are, you know, in principle, I don't like at all, are quite effective devices to start trying to move the machine. 
it's not a replacement for a strong, united Downing Street and Treasury pushing this across everything. But it, it was, I thought, quite an intelligent way of him trying to force things long term. And finally, Jennifer, I just wanted to ask you, when you look at this, obviously, we'll be revisiting this many times about what is fulfilled. Is there more money from the Treasury in the future? Does the Treasury's mindset change to a better state? When you think about those places that voted Conservative for the first time in 2019 and those voters Johnson very much had in mind when coming up with this levelling up strategy and tasking Michael Gove to do it, do you think if they start to make progress on this and we get to 2024, the argument that he wants to make will land? And that argument is to say, look, we've started to make some progress. The pandemic has held us back, but we are making your lives better. We are devolving power. We are trying to deal with productivity and skills and boosting R&D spend, or will it just be a disappointment and they'll take the Lisa Nandy view, which is, in fact, you've made all these big promises, but it's not really happening and it hasn't fundamentally changed how things are for you in your daily life. There are too many variables, aren't there? Because I think people perhaps would have been willing to give the benefits of the doubt. And actually, even with COVID added in and the problems that have been around policy during COVID, I think there probably would have been a an element of willingness to kind of say you can't solve this overnight. I think because you've now got the problems with the kind of government leadership that we've seen over the last few weeks and months, I think that sort of changes it somewhat. And we don't know how strong a kind of alternative, as Rachel says, Labour will be bringing to the table at the next election. So, I mean, at the moment, the polls... I'm not sure that it's kind of it's kind of sufficient, but in and of itself, I don't know whether it could ever be sufficient to overcome the kind of hit that Boris Johnson has taken in terms of political capital over the last few months. Just to come in quickly on the point about Labour, I think devolution is one of the areas that I am very unclear what exactly it is that Labour's policy is or has been on devolution. I can remember John McDonnell saying that if if they got in, the first thing he would do would be to hand power away. And Rachel Reeves said almost exactly the same phrase to me a couple of weeks ago. Is it true? Are you going to do that after that long out of power? Don't know. Keir Starmer said that they were going to come up with some kind of framework, I think, by the spring that was also going to take into account the union, which I think Gordon Brown is running. I'll be very, very interested to see what comes out of that and whether it is actually a detailed policy agenda. Well, I have the feeling we will be revisiting this topic once or twice in the future. Rachel and Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also like positive review and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Jan Sigsworth. Until next time, thank you for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.